Hi, my name is Sam Sheen. I'm here with my friend and professional colleague, Mary Lundberg, and this is our podcast, Captivated Audience. Today's special guest comes to us from Belgium. Over to you, Marie. Thank you, Sam. It is a pleasure to welcome Christopher Gen to our podcast, Captivated Audience. Hi, Chris. How are you doing today? Hi, Marie. Hi, Sam. I'm very good. Thank you. How are you guys? Thank you. We are doing well. Can you tell us a little bit about your professional background? We know that you reside and, and work out of Belgium, but we know that you also travel a lot, or you did at least travel a lot. Yes, that's two months I didn't sit in a plane. That's pretty bad, and I miss it. I'm the global head of compliance solutions at SAS. And um, as you know, SAS means Software Analytical Systems. So we basically build systems to help compliance teams banks in particular, but also everyone that needs to have a compliance solution, insurance companies, casinos, real estate, securities recently in some regions. So, and the role I have in that team, basically as a global head, I have to mentor and I have to train my 600 people uh, split over 59 countries and making sure they, they understand what software we do and how to position those software in the best way. Chris, give us a bit more detail about the types of financial crime risks your software is designed to address. So the legacy software or AML solution, it's for transaction monitoring. The first transaction monitoring tool in the world that was developed in 2001, 2002, um, a little bit before a few startups that were creating some softwares. Historically, it was for the four largest banks of the U.S., So the tool was the first transaction monitoring tool using big data. So that was 15 years before the birth of AI, big data. SAS created already a tool capable of monitoring transactions in batch and detecting anomalies, detecting suspicious behavior through the transactions. So that's the legacy system. And we do have uh, developed over the years a very powerful case management solution on the top of it, some customer due diligence and enhanced due diligence case management system. Uh, we developed scorecards to also on an advanced way using advanced analytics to uh, score clients uh, that are from the compliance viewpoint. And recently we just launched a brand new real-time sanction solution using all the text mining and uh, advanced analytics for unstructured data and being capable of uh, detecting it in real time. You mentioned real-time sanction screening. Yes. Let's talk about that. We heard from our other guests here on the podcast. When it comes down to sanctions and when it comes down to monitoring, sanction evasion is still ongoing. It's a huge problem. What can your software do in order to detect possible sanction evasion? So we know that name screening, it's pretty easy. It's black or white. You are the bad guy or you're not the bad guy. You are the pep, you're not the pep. When it comes to sanctions, it's really a mix of name screening and transaction monitoring, where it's not 100% clear quickly what is wrong in the, the payment. So what we have created, and it's a very good coincidence, it was put in general availability end of last week. It's the ability to use the latest technology in terms of text mining 
capable of reading any fields of any type of payment, not only Swift, but all the different payment network we can connect in real time. We can grab any data, we can grab any field, and in an open box or white box approach, you can design as a sanction specialist the rules you need to develop the rules that the other systems don't have on the market. Chris, as you know, traditionally, monitoring tools were designed around a few set scenarios, almost like the typologies of financial crime. Uh, and I know things have moved on since then, but it's a really strange time right now. The typologies of old haven't really applied with the commercial activity going on in the last four to six weeks. What do you think around that in terms of how people are using and even setting up those tools? The way um, I've been looking at this first, before speaking about how, how we do it in the system, The way I was looking at this first is looking at which industries have been impacted. Because detecting anomalies is based on peer group, based on statistical analysis. And some industries are going to zero. Look at the airline industry, we just mentioned at the beginning. Compared to the retail industry, three-digit increase in activity over the last weeks. The first thing is when you adopt anomaly detection, You need to understand the peer group or the cluster of the clients you want to monitor. I've been advising my clients to look at this. It's to look at first how your segmentation was done. Was your segmentation um, uniform or not uniform? Was your segmentation done out of clusters, business clusters, statistical clusters? And based on that, you could adjust your anomaly detection because you would see things that you would not see usually. And if you monitor supermarkets, you probably have to increase some of your thresholds in regard with cash activity, with uh, wires. If you monitor restaurants, be expected to not to receive any alerts, but you would probably monitor the type of activity they still have at the moment. If you see a restaurant continuing having incomes, there is something wrong, um, you would expect to decrease about minimum 80 to 90% on their numbers. That's how we have been advising our clients to adjust their thresholds and rules and make sure that they don't detect false positive because of the, the new pandemic. Does that mean that you add different kind of data sources to it? Not really. We adjust the data. We do not add new data. It's just that we have been telling our models that are detecting that something um, different is expected. So based on the clusters based on the type of business, usually you need probably three to six months data before you can detect and before you can have an accuracy in the detection. What we have pushed, because the, the system is on a white box, we told them instead of having an average, let's say of 10 grants a month, you will push to your system that we expect one grant and not 10 for specific businesses as a new threshold currently. And to adjust this almost in real time, as soon as some shops are reopening or some business are reopening or closing again, uh, we never know, to adjust this on their peer groups and on their clusters. Chris, I know you've done a fair bit of work down in Africa where banking and financial services is moving more towards, as some people might say, the European way of doing banking. But as you see them making this transition towards greater technological enablement, what do you see as both the opportunities but also the challenges there? That's a pretty good question. Obviously, in Africa is split in three. You have North Africa, you have Central Africa, and South Africa. In North Africa, you really see a trend like Europe. 
the ex-French colonies are following the Bank of France requirement. They, they really try to make the best they can. You look at the, the banks in Morocco, the, legislation, the Moroccan legislation is as much complex as the French one. They, they really try to catch up, um, stop money laundering. They know they have legacy issues on the country, the unbanked population, but there is a real willingness from the authorities, from the banks to make it. Then South Africa is completely different. South Africa is an island of Europe or uh, Middle East, America, um, in Africa. The four largest banks of the whole continent are there. You have a problem with corruption in South Africa. But after that, um, they also follow guidance from the FATF, from the, um, the local authorities, uh, um, FSA authorities equivalent. So that there is um, a real awareness about money laundering. The middle part in between South Africa and North Africa is actually extremely challenging. You have those countries where they are obliged to make it. I spent, um, that was 10 years ago, I spent almost one year on site in Gabon to deploy the, um, one of the legacy solutions prior I was working for SAS. But I spent a year on site, one week per month, just to develop 10, 15 transaction monitoring scenarios. And believe it or not, the head of compliance had his car completely destroyed uh, after the go live and with a small note on it, uh, stop the business you do. That's probably the, typically the problems we had. That being said, um, when you look at the big countries, the big financial power in, in Central Africa, I mean, Nigeria um, on the west side, Ghana, and on the east side, Kenya, those countries have a um, pretty interesting way to make it because they're obliged to make it if they want to just have activities with the rest of the world. So they try to, to go ahead. They try to have AML systems for the last 10 years. Now, are they really investigating every single case they find? Are they really looking at all the names they detect? One of my projects, cannot of course name the bank, but uh, that was um, SCB from Singapore uh, blocking a transaction they had accepted because there were some sanctions uh, that they did not discover. So did they pass the transaction on purpose? Did they not detect it? The problem with Africa is nobody will know. That sounds really challenging. Before this outbreak of this pandemic, I do know that you spend a lot of time also in the Middle East. Can you yes. tell us anything about those initiatives that's going on in that region? In, in the Middle East, I have a, with, with us an interesting position. We have a position of leadership on the market. We have more than 70 banks using our AML solution. The Middle East market obviously has this problem of money laundering. So, so you really see those banks that are really making everything possible to block it. At the same time, uh, just before the pandemic, the FATF was looking at putting back the UAE on the gray list countries and non-cooperative countries. So that's probably, sorry for my French, kick their ass, and they could make it back to a bit more um, rigor and trying to get a, a better sense of compliance and detecting illegal funds, illegal or the wrong persons making illegal transactions. Well, Chris, let's move from jurisdictions to activities with no borders and specifically in relation to cybercrime. So recently, the European Union issued its notice that it will be extending its cybersecurity related sanctions for a further year. 
We know we saw last year the first two e-wallet addresses go up on the OFAC list in relation to two individuals, and those lists are going to continue to grow. How are we going to flex these tools that we're using? Because instead of having a road name or a region, we're now going to be dealing with addresses, which are just a series of letters and numbers. Basically, when you speak first about cybercrime, look at some of the cases that happen in Asia. For example, where $81 million were stolen from the Southern Bank of Bangladesh, or, and they were laundered through the casinos in the Philippines. They were obviously using fake addresses. They were penetrating through uh, cybercrime into those networks. Also, when you look at um, the cryptocurrencies, if you look at the uh, Lazarus Group schema, they launder $471 million just in between 2017 and 2018. And that was done through cyber crime um, and lack of uh, security in some of the transactions. And they were using a, a pretty basic placement layering integration schema to launder the money just with mule accounts, with fake addresses, fake names, fake persons, and just with a Swift Payments 103, some of the most basic Swift Payments, they were cashing out the money legally in the rest of the world. That shows that if you cannot adjust quickly your system, of course, you, you will be always vulnerable, but you need to be able, when you detect it, when you know it, to adjust as quick as possible to block them. So that's where cyber crime and AML are probably going together. You, you must act as soon as possible when you detect one final question from me, Chris. As Marie mentioned earlier, you really are someone who covers the globe with your responsibilities, and it's always a pleasure to catch up with you. But you've been in Belgium for a long time now. What are you doing to stay sane? That's a good one. I work crazily. I don't know if it's because everyone is stuck at home, but the first thing I actually have probably back to back in average 10 to 15 conference calls per day from 8 a.m. until today, it was until 11 p.m. Personally, we live at home with five people, so I'm feeding those people with good food and good recipes. Well, thank you very much, Chris, for taking time out of your day. We know that you are hugely busy from dawn till dusk, so we really do appreciate it. Thank you. And if you'd like to do like Chris and take part in one of our future podcasts, or if you have any ideas or suggestions you'd like to share with us, feel free to reach out on our website, captivatedaudience.eu, or drop either Marie or myself a line directly on LinkedIn. Until the next time, have a great day and stay safe.